The scripture for today comes from Psalm chapter 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Good morning. Um, for the second half of the, the summer, we've been looking at the Psalms, and we've been doing this purposely because we believe that the Psalms uh, are a place in which uh, we, as the people of God, can learn to grow in our faith and our hope. Um, and as a church, that's something that we are hoping for, that as uh, whatever circumstances that we come upon or that we are in, that we are growing in our faith and our hope in Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to look at something um, that I want to just say up front that I feel uh, woefully inadequate to talk about. Um, and I, I want to say up front, too, that in no way will I be able to speak to everything about this topic. Um, and I will probably not be able to do the justice it deserves. <clears throat> Excuse me. But through the grace of, of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, we're going to speak about grief and loss this morning. Um, and truly what it looks like for Jesus to meet us in that place of grief and loss. Um, for you, those of you this morning, uh, especially those of you that are college students and, and are excited about the semester and the year. Those of you that are in a good place right now with work and with family. Um, this might feel like a bit of a downer in a lot of ways. Um, but I truly believe that. Grief and loss is really important for us to talk about as a body because at any moment, at any moment, we could be walking through some of the darkest moments of our lives. And someone you know at any moment could be walking through a dark moment in their life. And how do we, how do we as a people engage with that? How do we ourselves engage with that? That is our task today. And two weeks ago, um, three weeks ago now, tomorrow, my wife and I received some of the toughest news that we'd ever received before. We had spent most of July traveling and um, 
we were in vacation and we went the whole time without our 18 month old. Um, and it was very nice having a break, uh, <laughs> truth be told. Uh, but naturally when we got back, the first thing we wanted to do was we wanted to see her. So we get back on a Monday night, two weeks uh, away from her, uh, at around midnight. And so the first thing my wife does Tuesday morning is, um, she wakes up, she drives down to Charleston to go pick up our baby. And so she goes down and she picks up Lila and drives back so that I would have three or four hours with her um, before bedtime after work. And I'll never forget the feeling that I felt when I opened the door. Um, She had a big sister shirt on. And I was so excited in that moment. And um, we weren't trying to get pregnant at the time. And we knew that getting pregnant is such a blessing and a gift that's not given to everyone. Um, And we were excited. And I was so excited for us. Andrea is never more beautiful than when she's pregnant. Um, I couldn't be more excited about Lila being a big sister. And um, the hope of the future was in my hands. And two days later, we went to the doctor for an appointment, um, and there were some slight irregularities with the pregnancy. And we were worried, but our doctor said, don't worry, there's a really good chance, an 80% chance that this pregnancy is still viable. And so we were so certain that it would be fine that we set um, her next doctor's appointment for just a week later, um, with the only problem being that I was going to be in Costa Rica with um, the mission trip. Well, Monday comes around, and um, I get a phone call from Andrea, and um, the levels were off. And so they did an ultrasound, and I spent the morning praying, and there was no heartbeat with the ultrasound. And we had lost the baby. And I was a thousand miles away, and I couldn't do anything. I couldn't be there with my wife. I couldn't be there with my child, who had no idea what was going on. Grief washed over me like I'd never experienced before. And the team was in the other room, and they were getting ready, and they were reading the Bible, and they were excited for the day. And I I was excited for them too, but at the same time, I lay in my bed weeping alone, inconsolable. I'd never felt lost like this before. There was no words to describe the brokenness of my heart. Wanting to be just holding my family in my arms, and I couldn't. There was no theology, no faith, no hope for me in that moment. Grief encompassed me. Um, Grief, and this is a quote from a man named Nicholas Wolterstorff in that moment. It was not an island that I was alone on. It was the sea that I felt stranded in. And we're going to talk about grief and loss today. And I want to remind all of us of something. And I want to remind myself of something. Is that the point of this sermon is that Jesus meets us and reveals himself to us in our grief and loss. He truly does. I believe that to be true. But also what I want us to keep in tension today is that that's not always an instant thing. That's not always something that happens immediately. True grief and loss can be so intense and overpowering that that's all you can feel at times. And that's okay. 
This doesn't make the truth of the gospel any less. It doesn't make the faith of, of the believer any less strong. Grieving is a process that Jesus meets us in. Sometimes silently, sometimes in overwhelmingly poignant ways, sometimes directly and loudly, sometimes gently, and sometimes it doesn't even feel like he's there. But we know that he is. He does meet us in it. And because this is a process, because this knowledge and feeling of his presence isn't instantaneous or, or lasting, it can make our grief feel hopeless and painful. And this is in part the great mystery of sin and evil. That we know we have a God who hates sin, hates evil, hates brokenness, but has not chosen to completely do away with it yet. And loss and grief from loss of life, relationship, materials, jobs, animals, it was not the way it was meant to be. It breaks the shalom, the peace that the whole world was made for, the goodness that this place was created for. And that is something we can lament together. But what the psalmist is getting at in this psalm is what I'm still learning and processing through is that Jesus does meet us there. He is there. He's present. He reveals himself to us, to us in new ways and in familiar ways in it. And our hope, our only hope in the midst of that is that he knows what we're going through. That he is in it. And we know this because the psalmist, he, he paints this picture of intense grief. He says that death encompassed him. He says he experienced distress and anguish. His eyes were filled with tears. He knows what grief is, the psalmist does. But in the same breath, and this is what's so provocative about this psalm, is he says he loves the Lord. He says that the Lord's delivered him. He's inclined his ears to him. How can both of those two things be true? Today we're going to hopefully take a look at that together. And before we get into this passage, I know this has been a long introduction, but one thing I just want to remind us um, is something. The pain of grief and loss, it looks different for everyone. To walk through everyone's experiences is different. So for that reason, we're not going to talk about the stages of grief today. I'm not um, qualified to do that. We're not going to talk about a step-by-step plan of how to walk through loss. Again, I don't feel qualified to do that. This morning, we're going to look at simply this. What does it mean for Jesus to meet us in our broken, grieving places of loss? And if you are in the thick of it this morning, I hope in some small way, that this is a reprieve for you. And those of you that know people that are in the thick of it right now, I hope that this is in some way encouragement to you. And for those of you in years to come, when grief inevitably comes, I hope in some way this can be an encouragement to you. That's my hope for us this morning. So today we're going to look at three ways the psalmist shows us that we will experience the presence of the Lord in our grief and in our loss First, we must call on his name in the midst of it. Two, we must count on his character in the midst of his grief and our grief and loss. And three, we must celebrate his deliverance in the midst of it. So first, we must call on his name. Uh, In verse three of the psalm, he says this, uh, The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. And I suffered distress and anguish. 
And if you take this verse at face value and pair it with the the later verse that mentions death, it could be read that the psalmist had a a life-threatening injury or perhaps a sickness that caused him great distress. And this could very well be true. But I think what the psalmist is actually getting at is more than just his own health. I think he suffered a great loss and gone through a period of grief. And here's why. In the Old Testament poetry, in which the Psalms are, death and Sheol are incriminating and aggressive forces. Often the poets would use Sheol and death to describe the brokenness and pain of the world that they were feeling. The, the, the feelings of grief and despondency that came with that. Um, the psalmist is, in essence, telling us that his hold on his life was slipping through his fingers. Death is almost like a person here. Uh, that He says that he, I'm in his clutches. I'm in the clutches of death. It had seized him and entangled him. His grief and loss made him feel as if he was on his deathbed. And this is what grief does, right? Loss does. It robs us of hope. Sometimes even the will to live. It's overwhelming and powerful and crushing. Even to the point of what it feels like death. So what does the psalmist do when all he can feel is trouble, loss, and sorrow? He does something very simple. He simply calls on the name of the Lord. Right after verse 3, right after describing his sorrow and pain and overwhelming and crushing feelings, he says, Then I called on the name of the Lord, O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. He asks for deliverance. He asks to be relinquished from his pain. And we don't know how long it took. We don't know if it was days Weeks, years, or a lifetime. But the Lord answered him. He rescued him from his grief and pain. And before that, the psalmist tells us that the Lord knew his sorrow intimately. He was listening to him as he called on his name. Verses 1 and 2 say this, I love the Lord because he heard my voice. He heard my pleas for mercy. He inclined his ear to me. So I will call on him as long as I live. The psalmist is reminding us that God is listening when we cry out to him. When we call on his name, he hears us. He sees us. He inclines his ears to us. He hears our cries for mercy and deliverance. He is present. But it's true when you're in the throes of grief. It doesn't feel that way, does it? It doesn't feel like anyone's with us, actually. No one could listen to our pleas, understand what we were going through. And if we do cry out to God at all, if you're like me, it tends to be angry, bitter, with little hope, and doubting whether he even cares at all. In this psalm and others, it may may seem like uh, going from grief to deliverance, pain to rescue is an instantaneous path that, with, uh, that the Lord just brings us in. And when that doesn't happen, and we feel a lack of instant deliverance, or when we want it, it leads us to question first Him, and then, again, if you're like me, question my own faith. Do I even really believe this? 
But that couldn't be farther from the truth. In fact, often the Psalms talk about being crushed, disillusioned, on the run, enemies at their doorsteps, at the end of themselves constantly. You see, the Bible welcomes those who are in the thick of it. For those of us in grief and in loss, the Bible welcomes us to cry out to the Lord. To scream out our pain to Him. To bring it to His feet. It's because in that pain, in that expressing that pain to Him, is where our faith is alive. Pain betokens life. So we must call on the name of the Lord in our grief because it's there that He will meet us. It's there that He will show us His presence. That is our hope. I mentioned um, Nicholas Wolterstorff earlier. Um, Michael told me about his book and I read it this week and um, sat at my desk and, and he cried um, it's called a lament for my son. And it's about, um, a theology professor whose son died at 25, um, in a, a climbing accident. And he published his journal while he walked through the grief of losing his son. And he does an amazing job on holding on to the tension of, of his deep despondency and grief in the faith and calling on the name of God in this really beautiful and poignant way. He says this, and this was the cry of my heart this week. He said, faith is a footbridge that you don't know will hold you up over the chasm until you're forced to walk out onto it. He said, I'm standing there now over this chasm. I inspect the bridge. And then he questions himself. Am I deluded in believing that in God the question shouted out by the wounds of the world has its answer? Am I deluded in believing that someday I will know the answer? Am I deluded in believing that once I know the answer, I will see that love has conquered? You see, he holds the faith and the questioning in two hands and tension together. And this is our tension as we walk through grief and loss. Is having faith that God hears us, is with us, cares for us when we call on his name, even when it feels like a delusion at times. Hoping that he will rescue and deliver us. And believing truly that he will. So if you are in the thick of it right now, or if you know someone who is, or if you just want to tuck this away for another day, remember this. When our grief and pain is most acute, maybe the only thing that you can do is cry out to the Lord. And that's okay. And I think the psalmist would tell us that's exactly, actually, what we have to do to see Jesus standing there. And this brings us to our second point. So first, because Jesus reveals to us in our grief and loss, we must call on his name first. And now second, we must count on his character. And when we've been taken to the end of ourselves through our grief and loss, sometimes the least and yet most we can do is call on the name of the Lord. Crying out to him in our anguish and distress for hope and deliverance and rescue. But grief and loss is not just an overpowering and hyper-painful experience. Like I said, it's a road to be walked. Sometimes it, the pain of it will hit. Sometimes I'll watch a commercial and tear up or read something in a book and lose it, even just over these past three weeks. But the pain of it can often feel like a dull ache rather than a searing one. So where is our hope then when the grief isn't acute, but it seems like it sticks with us, not being able to shed it? 
In those moments, we must count on the character of God. We must remember who He is and what He has done, and we must remind ourselves of His goodness and His grace. And this is why the psalmist in in verse 5 says the Lord is gracious and, and righteous and merciful, that He preserved the psalmist when he was at his lowest. The Lord saved him. And in verse 6, it's it's why he says that his great grief and pain, he can say those things, but the Lord also dealt bountifully with him and returned his soul from death in verse 7 and 8. It's why he can say that he can walk before the Lord in the land of the living in verse 9, because he is a God who met him in his grief and sorrow and delivered him. That when he was greatly afflicted and couldn't trust anyone, the Lord revealed himself to him in verses 10 and 11. I feel like he's writing this almost to remind me and to remind you that we have a God who's good and gracious and to not forget it. That he promises to deliver us who isn't far from us, who deals graciously and righteously with us because that's who he is. He loves us so much that he gives us the strength to walk in our grief even when it feels like our feet won't walk for us. So what does this look like for us? How can we remember his character? The first is through memory. We have to remember the times God revealed his goodness and love to us. The times he did rescue us. The times he did deliver us. All of the many blessings that he has poured out on us. And those times of the dull ache and grief stay with us. We have to remember that it is not always this way. That we have a God who has not always dealt with us in this way. Throughout the whole Old Testament, if you go back and read it, the judges, the kings, the prophets, they constantly bring up the past. They're constantly reminding their Israelites, the people under them, the character of the God that they serve. They constantly bring up the way God covenanted with man through Adam and Abraham and Noah and David. They constantly bring up the story of the Exodus, God rescuing his people from slavery. They constantly bring up the heroes of the faith. And they instruct one another to never forget them, to pass it on from their children to their children's children, to bring them up in this way, to never forget it. And they do this. And we have to do it for ourselves and for one another so that when the loss feels like it's at its most potent or when it feels like it's that dull ache, we can remember the goodness of our God. We must cling to those times that he's rescued and delivered us when he's pulled us through, when he's cared for us in amazing and ordinary and wonderful ways because without that, we will be lost. Dan Allender puts it this way. Memory plays a crucial role in the Bible. It is an important role to play in faith. We tend to think of uh, memory as a purely mental act. Referring, referring merely to the ability to recall something in mind. And in the Bible, it's much more. It's not just a thought. It's, it's also imagination. It's the borrowing of history as a picture of our curtain, current story. It's not mere nostalgia. It's a borrowing of the past as a template of what we hope for in the present. To remember the past is to reshape the present with desire and hope. So the other way we can count on the character of God in the midst of our grief is to remember how his character manifested in Jesus Christ. One thing that I think I've learned through this whole experience with losing our baby is that Jesus doesn't just sympathize with my grief. 
He doesn't just sympathize with my suffering and my loss. He experiences it with me. We don't have a God who watches as we struggle with the brokenness of the world, but rather one who sent his own son to experience that brokenness, to take on that suffering on his entire person, though he didn't deserve it. We have a God who didn't just enter our mess, but he entered our suffering. Our grief, our pain, he experienced that in his person. He doesn't just sympathize. He experienced it. He knows it. He knows it intimately because he took it on himself 2,000 years ago on a cross. Instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. Which is actually very freeing for us. In our loss, in our grief, we don't have to use words. He knows it. He knows it intimately because he experienced it with us and it breaks his heart. And this is not to make a general statement, but if you are walking through a loss or grief with someone else who's experienced it, sometimes the best and most pertinent thing you can do with them is just to be present with them. It's simply being with them, holding them, listening to them, and experiencing it as much as you can with them. Not explaining away their grief or their loss or their hurt. Not sending empty platitudes at them, but just being with them. And in that way, you are being Jesus to them. It reminds them in a way that Jesus is with them as well. Sharing and experiencing their grief with them. Sitting with them is how we can be Jesus to those who are in an ocean of grief. And this brings us to our final point. Because Jesus revealed himself to us in our grief and loss, we must call his name, we must count on his character, and finally we must celebrate his deliverance. Now this idea of celebrating God's deliverance is, again, and I just want to remind us, this is not something immediate. It's not something that happens the same way for everyone because the process of grief looks different for everyone. But celebrating the deliverance of God can often, at times, even if we're not careful, it can also be hurtful. If you're constantly looking for a silver lining for someone in the midst of their grief and loss. Indeed, much hurt has been done by premature statements that claim that God has a plan or that he's good no matter what or that everything happens for a reason. And these statements are well-intentioned. But timing can often be everything. But there is a time when the pain, though it never leaves, does recede some. And once God has brought us to the end of ourselves and back, there is a time that I look forward to where we can celebrate his goodness and deliverance once again. So what does that look like? What does it look like to trust in the Lord anew for deliverance and rescue from our grief and loss and pain? And the psalmist wrestles with this question. He asks in verse 12, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? What shall I give to him? What can I do to repay this God who was with me in the darkest time of my life, whose presence was a gift to me? And he says immediately, and this is shocking, he says, I will lift up the cup of salvation. I will call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. 
Here's what's so beautiful about the gospel. It's given freely to us. There's nothing we can do about His goodness and His grace and His deliverance. It's freely given to us. All we can do is to lift that cup that's overflowing with His goodness and His grace and His love and His deliverance and lift it up to Him in gratitude. There's nothing we can do to repay Him for His goodness and His love for us but to acknowledge it. And then as the psalmist is saying, acknowledge it to one another. Our stories of pain and loss and grief can end up being our greatest witness to one another and to the work of the gospel in the world itself. We can celebrate the deliverance of God by allowing our stories of grief and loss and the rescue and presence of Jesus in the midst of them to become stories of hope for those that need it. Those that are in the pit themselves. This is why he says in 18 and 19, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, he has allowed his story to become a beacon of hope for those in darkness. And this is why I think my favorite verse in this whole psalm is verse 15. It says this, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And the word precious here is actually better translated as costly. The death of his people, his saints, is costly to our Lord. Because it's not the way it was always meant to be. We can take hope that those we lose are with Jesus. I want to remind you guys, the sting of death, the wrongness of death, is something that we must grapple with. It's not the way it was supposed to be. Death was never supposed to be part of this equation. It is wrong. It's broken. God hates death. He hates the corruption of his creation. Sin, death, hate, brokenness, grief, and loss. He hates it so much that he sent his son to experience it because he wanted to save us from it. That is the hope in our grief that God hates that we experience it even more than we do. Because of this, I love the story of Jesus reappearing to his disciples in the Gospels because he still has his wounds on his body. And he invites his people to feel them. Those wounds, the marks of pain and suffering and loss he experienced were still with him as a reminder of the great cost of his sacrifice that he took on our behalf. It's in those wounds that we are able to celebrate. Allender again says, Therefore, I cannot sorrow over the loss of life, betrayal, and abandonment without anticipating the dawning day of utter redemption. I cannot weep without sensing that each tear is caught in the crevice of his wounds, mingled with his sorrow, and saved as a rare perfume to anoint his glory. We can celebrate as our life continues and goes on despite our loss and grief, that we have a God who does not forsake us, who does not abandon us, who does not stop loving us no matter how much pain and grief and loss we feel, who suffers when we suffer, who doesn't want us to experience the grief and loss we do, who can still be in control of all things while allowing terrible and broken things to happen. But to remember that they are not of His doing. They are not of His work. They are not of His kingdom but a result of the sinfulness and brokenness of this world. And we can cling to the hope that he will return one day to set it all right again. 
And in the meantime, we can celebrate his presence with us and the grief and loss we feel. Allender again says this, As we fathom the emptiness of despair, we gain a deeper understanding of Jesus' willingness to empty himself of his glory and to sorrow alone on our behalf. Through our sadness, we learn something about the heart of the Lord. In this way, despair catapults us not into the dark abyss, but into the bright presence of God. Sometimes this bright presence of God looks like people coming around us. And as we finish here, um, the, the Monday night, probably the worst day of my life, the darkest day of my life, um, as I wept more that day than I ever had before, um, Andrea encouraged me to tell the Costa Rica team what had happened. And um, they, they knew something was up. I was not myself that day, obviously. Um, and I'll never forget having our whole meeting that night and sitting in front of them and telling them what had happened that day, thousands of miles away in Greensboro. And I'll never forget what they did that night. They didn't say anything. They listened to me. They cried. And they stood up. And they wrapped their arms around me. All of them. All 18 of them. And they prayed for me. And they prayed for Andrea. And they prayed for Lila. And they sat with me in my grief and in my loss. They just, they sat there. And they prayed. And they laid their hands on me. And they wrapped their arms around me. And, you know, I felt so broken and so sad, but so loved in that moment. And I'll never forget afterwards, Kyle Klimek looking at me and saying, hey, no matter what holes you need filled this week as you lead this team, don't even ask, I'll fill them for you. I'll never forget Celeste laying in her bed, typing out an email to me, reminding me that she loves me and she's there for me and she loves Andrea and Lila and she's there for us. And me getting that in my bed as I couldn't sleep. I'll never forget Jeremy looking at me and saying, I don't have words to even say to you. Just know that I'm so sorry. Each of them met me. And that whole team met me in that brokenness. And they were Jesus to me there. And that is where our hope is. It's that Jesus does meet us in that place. That he does share in that experience with us. That no matter what, he loves us. No matter how dark it gets. And he wants to be there with us. And he is there with us. And we know that no more and no more prevalent than in this table. Because it's at this table that we are shown that Jesus' body was broken for us. That he allowed himself, he shared in our suffering so much that he came down, lived a perfect life, and then took our punishment on himself. And he took the bread and he blessed it. And he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood that's going to be poured out for you. It's a sign of the new covenant, something new. 
that all of your sins, past, present, and future, are going to be paid for by my blood. And he said, take this, drink it, do this in remembrance of me. This table is our hope this morning in our grief and in our loss.